Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, DR, Miles, and Kai talking about all the news that you didn't hear from the past week that has to do with race, justice, and equity. Then I sat down with criminal defense lawyer and writer Dr. Rebecca Cavanaugh to talk about her recent op-ed in Team Vogue about D.A.R.E. Do you remember the D.A.R.E. program? I remember the D.A.R.E. program. It was such a wild moment where it wasn't necessarily effective getting kids not to use drugs. And who knew it is back? So we'll talk about that. And the advice for this week is to enjoy this weird weather. I'm in between New York and Baltimore, and let me tell you, it's 70 degrees today. I don't even understand. I'm not looking forward to it getting dark at five o'clock, but I am enjoying the weather while I can, going out for walks with my friends, hanging out with people. Enjoy it while you can. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I am Miles E. Johnson, and you can find me definitely on Instagram on at Feral Rapture. <laughs> Maybe by the time you listen to this, I'll still be on Twitter at Feral Rapture too. But things are changing. I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter until Black Twitter tells me otherwise at Henderson Kaya. And this is Duray at D R E Y on Twitter for now. <laughs> <laughs> so we are one day out from the midterm elections. And what a wild season it has been, obviously. Um, And I can't believe that it's here. Like, it's November. It's so wild. Um, So so lots to talk about. But I think it's, it's really been interesting to see what's going on with Kathy Hochul here in New York. Um, I think, you know, the New York governorship is always, you know, usually Democratic, usually easy to do. And I feel like Kathy's been in a little trouble recently and she's had everybody and their mama out here, um, including Joe Biden coming to New York to campaign. Wow, that's a really terrible sign. How come my cousins and them them were like, we're waiting to see the president? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> up in Bronxville or somewhere, Terrytown or somewhere in Westchester. I was like, wait, say what? Yes. So, you know, so that so that's going on. So obviously we need to get into conversation about the elections, what we're thinking, what's happening, where we all are. Um, the other thing is Elon Musk. I guess he's doing things. You know, I, I someone else is going to chime in there because I don't, again... Like I said last week, I'm really not fooling with the Twitter. So I don't know what's going on. DeRay made a very provocative point last week where he said that uh, there was an opinion that Elon Musk purchased Twitter to break it from the inside. That seems pretty apparent (laughs) based on the big layoffs and, you know, um, 
and now hiring back some people who they need to make things work and who's running it and what I, it just, I mean, it really feels like Twitter is run amok. And what I will say is for a lot of people, this is like earth shattering for a whole segment of the population. This don't mean Jack. And that is a little bit of the comfort that I take. Everybody ain't on Twitter. Everybody's life doesn't revolve around Twitter. Elon is going to be Elon in, and this is going to be one more thing. And as the world turns. And so while this is super important to us and people who, you know, a part of their brand identity and their conversation and their policy and whatnot is informed by social media platforms. This is really important. And we're going to keep on talking about this, but it's some folks, I got some other cousins (laughs) who could care less about what the bluebird is doing. Wait, did y'all see this, that he's charging, he's going to charge Twitter blue verification people $7.99 per month. month. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you get tweets and... What? But here's the thing. He fired the people that they needed to roll this thing out in the 7,500 people layoff. And so now they got to hire the people back in order to make this new service available to people. Huh? No, It's really nuts. It is also one of the things about Elon that's so interesting is that he had always been quirky to people, but people thought he was sort of like a brilliant leader, right? Like Tesla the cars are futuristic and the hyperloop thing, even though that wasn't success. And it has been interesting to see people in, in like in mass sort of realize the charade of it all. Right. Like not a genius, not a phenomenal leader, not a great decision maker. Like you actually see it all in clear view. And, you know, he kicked Kathy Griffin off the platform for quote impersonating him. And it was like, she's clearly a comedian. It's like, you're like a child who bought this really big platform. It'll be interesting to see who actually buys it next. Like, is it, does Microsoft buy it? Does Apple buy it? Like who, you know, I don't think Elon's going to have this for long. I feel like every day I go on Twitter, it's just, it is really sad. I saw this one tweet where somebody was saying it feels like, like a graduation day energy. It does. It, do, it does feel like Out that. It does. It, def, it definitely does feel like that. It feels like it's it. It's the. It's it. It's it's done. You know. Don't don't make a hard thing harder. Let the breakup make it be easy. Put all your stuff in a cardboard box. Let's just you know say our dudes. Miles, shut I'll, up. I'll, Graduation I'll, day energy. <laughs> like, that's I good. This. I gotta use I that. I gotta it. use that. Like that's what it. That's what it kind of feels like on there. Yeah. And to Kai's point, there is because even. I, I think I arrived at that opinion from a point of privilege because I no longer need social media or Twitter um, or or any social media platform in order to like make money or in order to gain visibility or um, I, I just have like re re-engineer my life where that wasn't a necessity. So I was kind of slow to say that because I know that's a really real thing and the stories around writers who are just kind of terrified about having these, you know, modest but strong, you know, 90,000, 50,000, 20,000, 100,000 um, platforms. And that is what's getting them writing deals, so what's helping them, you know, make a living. Um, and it, 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 I, I love writers. That is a that's that, that's a part of the community that I just like love, and that part is really scary. But I also understand that it's a microcosm of a microcosm child, and yeah, there's 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 uh, bigger things happening. To quote uh, Kourtney Kardashian, people are dying. Kim, people are dying. 
<laughs> um, Kyrie Irving might be dying a slow NBA death given his uh, comments <clears throat> and the NBA's reaction to his comments and Nike's reaction to his comments and the fact that he's having an incredibly crappy season. What thank you, friends? Is he the same young man that wouldn't get vaccinated? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. I don't want to sound ridiculous. Go ahead. I I don't want to sound ridiculous. Who is this man? (laughs) (laughs) That this is a good question, Miles. This is why y'all know. Soon y'all tap into certain areas of life. I'm like, ooh. Kyrie (laughs) Irving. Kyrie Irving is a Brooklyn Nets player. Got it. Has been heralded as one of the most skilled basketball players, um, but he is on a bad roll in that he is not playing well at all. Um, many folks feel like every team that he's on, he has trouble. He's not a good team player, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. He had the whole anti vax thing, refusing to get vaccinated would rather sit out, all of this stuff. Um, And his most recent thing is he posted um, a tweet, I think, about this um, movie that is largely viewed as anti-Semitic. It's, you know, it seems like the young man has, is a black Hebrew Israelite. You know what those are, don't Mm -hmm. you? And so- Yeah, I definitely know what those are. he's, He's from Brooklyn. I think I don't know where he's from technically. I think okay. I don't know where he's from, but he is he's clearly in the process of discovering that the history that you were taught is not the history. And there's all kinds of stuff that is taught and you know um and what's interesting is he you know he posted this thing about this movie and the the uh, uh many people feel that the movie is anti-semitic and so Um, He got a ton of flack for it. Um, He uh, sort of apologized, um, semi-apologized. He apologized for uh, for offending people. And but he didn't apologize for trying to learn his own history. And, you know, it, it is sort of tantamount to if somebody's a Farrakhan follower, you might not like their beliefs, but they get to believe what they believe. And he gets to sort of say what he wants to say, kind of, sort of, except the NBA was like, no, you don't. Sorry, suspended him for five games because they didn't like his apology. Um, Nike cut their deal with him. Um, he's paying significantly. And this, I, what I will say about the cat is he's like, you know, look, um, I'm 30. I'm learning. I'm, you know, and like I'm standing up for my history, my heritage, my whatever. And, you know, people have had a very negative reaction to that. I don't I don't give a hoot what Kyrie Irving thinks or believes because I don't base my stuff on, you know, what the current NBA basketball players are thinking. I understand he has a platform and all of that. My only and so I, I wouldn't even wade into this. But for me, this is just a clear reminder that black folks can't do what other people do. Joe Rogan has said all kinds of anti-Semitic stuff and nobody mess with his coins. Right. 
Um, but this young black man who is clearly trying to figure out who he is and what history means in the world and all of that stuff does not have the freedom to figure it out without it taking a hit to his pocketbook. Um, I think that's a very interesting thing to watch. I, you know, I don't endorse his beliefs, but I think every time we think about equity and justice and whatnot, like we have to think about these cases as well because we we want to you know, protect everybody's first amendment rights. This dude, you know, my, one of my girlfriends was like, whatever, he works for a private employer and private employers get to decide whether they want to respect your first amendment rights or not. And I was like, oh yeah. And we black. And so, you know, it's been interesting to watch. While you were talking, I went to where I, you know, gather so much of my my data, which is the shade room comments, <laughs> to see what was going on on the shade room and see what's happening. I think what's interesting. So yeah, an individual person. This happening to one Ky- Kyrie Irving. That's uh-huh. how you say that. Well, this happening to one Kyrie Irving in NBA. It's an interesting story, but I think the more interesting story to me, for while you were um, talking, Kaya, was the, a lot of black folks' response. And a lot of black folks are not okay with this and not ha- and not happy with it. And it does remind me that you know I am a non-binary trans femme. Blah 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 blah. Words. <laughs> who's, who's talking to you right? Who's talking to you right now? And usually I have pretty left of leaning politics. However, my first arrival at critical thinking was was uh, Dr. Cress Wilson, who. Uh, was conservative in her beliefs to put it at to put it at best you know um (laughs) but i was consuming and engaging with uh rhetoric that was deeply transphobic deeply homophobic and as well as um some 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 more interesting ideas around uh you know blackness and, and, and whiteness and i needed those things and i think because black people specifically black americans because there's such a question mark around our identities and how we got here in our histories. And because there is so little trust in the people who are educating us about our identities and stuff and, and, and how we got here, that we then we we then end up creating our own histories and our own myths that we that we end up depending on and trusting more than the people who indoctrinated us. And yeah, I definitely think that as a, as a very rich singular man in this company, this is fascinating and also sure they, they are right. But I think the more the part that I get more interested in is how are we going to make it so our history and what has really happened is trusted. You know, it it really reminds me of the medical system, too, where people want to pathologize Black people and shame Black people for what happens to us, what doesn't happen to us, but then don't want to don't want to talk about the history and the present moments that are annihilating Black mothers and misdiagnosing certain Black people. Like we have to kind of uh, address that that trust that is letting the the ignorance uh, live. And I'll say one of the the enduring thing I got from the Holocaust Museum when I was in Germany was uh, not only how how intentionally they have done, uh, not only how much intentional work they've done to erase uh, any monument or like you will not be able to go around Germany and find and praise a single thing that was Nazi. They have wiped it out, built some over it. Da-da-da. 
but the second thing is that in the Holocaust Museum, you just see all these first-person accounts. You do. You just, like, it's the letters from kids and wives and husbands. And and there is something about um, what does it mean to to not only see retellings of the past, but see it in first person. And when I think about one of the truly insidious things of what American and uh, the history of American chattel slavery did is that there are just so few first person narratives of that time that help us and help people coming into a learning realize the sheer terror of it all. And it's like, that's what, that's why Kanye's comments were so frustrating. And so you're like, Kanye, slavery was so wild. And for you to even suggest in jest that it was a choice is so wildly offensive to all the, offensive isn't even like the right word, but to all the people uh, who suffered. And and what does it mean that we don't have uh, those documents? I'm always reminded of. I think it's not just the documents. Like one of the things that I've taken from my visits to the Holocaust Museum is there is always the encouraging of dialogue, right? Like people who don't know can ask questions and you have to confront in order to engage. And um, Damon Young wrote in the Washington Post how like Kyrie is like your young cousin who goes to college and learns some stuff that like lots of other people knew, but they didn't know. And so they come home and they're Einstein and they are pressing this new theory out and whatnot. And they haven't done all of the intellectually rigorous, you know, examination. And they haven't listened to what other people have already said about this thing. And like, there is a space of learning that is clearly happening with this young man. But because we have, um, like, because we don't encourage the dialogue, like there is no dialogue. There is, it is this way and you gonna walk this way or not then we're losing a huge opportunity, I think, to help people come to their own. I mean, the the greatest way to approach history is to get it on your own, to be able to pull together and make sense of the different things that you're seeing. And this dude is trying to do that. And maybe it ain't the right stuff or the right way or whatever. But like I think about what's happening on college campuses and how intellectual debate is no longer possible. Um, I was watching, I don't know, something this weekend and college professors were like, I just don't bring up provocative topics because somebody's going to land a, land without a job. And the hmm. news reporter was like, isn't this the place that isn't college the place where you're supposed to be able to pull this stuff together? And he's like, not anymore. And so my real worry is about the lack of debate. The Kanye stuff is a whole different ball game, right? <laughs> um, I, I can't even, that is major leagues. That's a whole different level. Um, but I, like, this thing has been fascinating to watch. And yeah. And it, it, I just want to add we gotta get to the things, news, just because I feel like I was that, like, I remember coming home from college, literally being a Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I saw that happen with my brothers too. Like, my brother's like, will come home from Morehouse and actually like want to boycott boycott at Morehouse. And I'm like, but y'all go to a black school. Um, but anyway, I feel like for Kyrie, just to give some context to him too, because I think it's important. Um, evidently his mother is tied to um, the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And so he acknowledged those family ties and in gratitude for his activism um, during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, um, 
basically, like, he became an enrolled member in the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. So I just, I don't, I just, I feel like that is just so fascinating. The other thing, in April 2021, he announced that he's committed to Islam. Um, uh, For me, in my terms, this is a quote from him, for me, in terms of my faith and what I believe in, being part of the Muslim community, being committed to Islam, and also just being committed to all races, cultures, religions, just having an understanding and respect so again, like I think, and you know, this this young man has done so much activism and donated so many things. I think I saw something that he, um, uh, he, you know, he's paid people's t- kids tuitions. He's donated to George Floyd's family, yada yada yada. So I think Kaya, to, well, to everyone's point, like really, he is just trying to figure out who who he is and what that means in the world and what his platform means. Look, this child done built a solar water center in Pakistan. How the who? <laughs> what? So my news is from the 19th. And it was interesting because even in my searches for news around voting and Black folks, all I could find, honestly, were articles about how Black men aren't voting for Democrats. And there's been, well, there's a sliver of the you know, black male population that um, is now being courted successfully by the Republican Party. Now, I didn't want to talk about that because it wouldn't be a good, it wouldn't be a good thing for me. So I went to the 19th where Aaron Hayes obviously is a, is, is a founder of the 19th. So I could find me some news about black women. Oh, but then I came across this article. Could Jennifer Ruth Green be the second Black Republican woman in Congress? I think we need to have a family meeting. We got to get together. I've been advocating for the white women to have a meeting, but maybe it's time, Black people, for us to also have a family meeting. So she's running to flip an Indiana House seat red. She is a Republican in Indiana. Oh. So this is Indiana's first congressional district. It's the state's most diverse um, and is home to uh, a contested House race. Um, Voters could make history here uh, in this district, and this could swing to the GOP and send the first Republican in nearly 100 years to Congress. And that person will be a Black Republican woman. So Jennifer Ruth Green, she's a frequent guest on Fox News. She's raised nearly $3 million uh, to challenge first-term Democratic rep Frank Marvin. Um, Marvin Green, whose father is Black and whose mother is Filipino. He's an Air Force veteran, active duty National Guardsman, and a nonprofit founder. She, um, she is all of that, not him. She is the She, things. she. Ooh, I'm sorry. The current, the, 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 the who's in there now? The black, the Jennifer Ruth Green is the black Filipino girl who is, she's all of those Wait, things. she is? Yeah. She'll be oh, the first I thought black I was reading and about the first the, Asian American. Oh, okay. Okay. No, got it, got it, got it. Thanks, Kyle. She is bringing Kaya. all of the Democratic credentials. So <laughs> that's what's going on here. But she's anti-critical race theory and negative on the state of the economy. And she's saying as a military member and as a conservative, I just saw the clear lack of leadership and I just felt underrepresented. 
Oh, gosh. So while the overwhelming majority of Black Americans are Democrats, of course, the Republican Party's base is dominated by non-college educated white voters. Every Republican who flipped a House seat in 2020 was either a woman or a person of color. Green is one of six Black Republican women on the ballot Tuesday. Tamika Hamilton is running in California. Um, Asia Smith in California. Also in California, Carla Spaulding, Florida, Cicely Davis in Minnesota, and Charlotte Bergman in Tennessee. Um, yeah, I just wanted this. Okay, this it's it's complicated, right? Because on one side, I'm like, and and this has been so much on my mind too, because Pal Pal covers so much of you know the really significant sliver of Latino voters who are more and more turning to the Republican Party. So this is also happening in the Latino community that there are going to be some potentially some houses flipped. But, you know, Maya Flores, who's Mexican-American running in Texas. There's another woman um, in Virginia in the 7th District, actually, who is a Republican Salvadorian woman. You know, it, there, there has been a shift happening where the Republican Party is becoming more appealing to our communities and I feel like the Democrats aren't necessarily keeping up with that or making significant moves or strides to try to speak to that. And what's interesting is that instead of coming up with a game plan, they act like it's not happening and that this sliver isn't going to be consequential enough to, to impact elections. But the Latino population is the largest minority population in this country, Black people are second to that. And if we continue to chip away at, at, at these communities' support, I mean, like, over time, there is going to be a drastic change. Um, so I don't know. I just, you know, this, you know, I was trying to get my hopes up to find, <clears throat> you know, just a nice, beautiful story about Stacey Abrams. But no, I came across this here. So we'll, you know, we'll we'll continue to watch to see what happens. But there, listen, this is this midterm is going to be really, really fascinating to watch. And a number of if they flip these seats, it's women and people of color that are doing it on the Republican side. Yeah, I I do have a um, I don't know. I have a good good a, a good superpower of empathy um, because I do think that. So even talking to us, right, and me talking to you all, and sometimes when we have private conversations and public conversations, I'll notice that y'all lean, we're having a liberal conversation, but y'all might even lean more conservative or things that I'm thinking like, oh, that's, a, that's, that, that's a take, or that's, a, that's, that, 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 to me, that feels a little bit, um, on the conservative side of the conversation or whatever. And so I know if that's happening in this like microcosm of pod say the people, I can really only imagine what's happening when uh, liberals, people on the left are uh, are talking about things that I, that I just think that are these hot button issues that are these um, issues around like abortion or these issues around um, transness and and like gender conversations and stuff like that and i think that we forget that black people 
and I feel like I just have echoed this so many times, if it wasn't for a lot of race issues, Black people are culturally a conservative people. (laughs) A lot of this stuff they are not with. And I just think that we're going to continue to see moments like this now that the Trumper is its own political thing that happens to be associated with the with the um, Republican Party, but it's not the Republican Party. There's this opening for Black people to not be a traitor of their race, but still be conservative. And and I would assume this is happening in other in in, in other races and other cultures that would be predicted to be to go left as well. It's interesting, but it just. I just think that's how it's going to, I think that's how it's, it's not a surprise. Be. It's not and a I think, surprise. And I yeah. think that a lot of black people have been waiting to not be associated with some of the things that the democratic party is associated with, you know? And again, I think this connects to, to Farrakhan and, and, and Dr. Ir- excuse me, Dr. Irving, but um, Kyrie Irving and stuff like that. Like, Black people are conservative people and the race thing is the thing, but that's about it. If you look at what Farrakhan says, Farrakhan don't, no, no, does not, no abortions, no, no, um, uh, no, no gender talk, you know, mm-hmm. the, the man and women's place, like all the stuff that, that the, um, that this cultural stuff that the Democratic Party is, is known for discussing a lot of black people are not with, and and I just think they were seeing a space open for them to be able to uh, express that. Dun dun dun. dun. Um, I thought I think I think that's right, Miles. Um, I also think that part of I, I was struck by her comments. You know, I understand her concern about. Uh, I, I one, I think I think there's not it's not a coincidence that a lot of these um, women of color who are running are military women, Mm -hmm. uh, veterans. And let's be very clear about the fact that the military is one of the best educational systems in terms of building patriotism, in terms of helping vast amounts of diverse people work together around a common cause. And um, the thing that she says is she's incredibly anti-CRT. She doesn't believe in the inherent racism in systems because she couldn't have been an Air Force commander or whatever she is um, if if systems were inherently racist. Well, sis, I mean, it's only recently that you could be an Air Force commander or whatever you are. And this is the danger of not knowing our history. I mean, the, the, the thing to me about all of this stuff is we have been hoodwinked on this individualism versus collectivism. Like Black people are collective people. The only way we've ever gotten ahead is by working together. The only way we're going to get ahead is by working together. But you teach us all of this rugged individualism and just all that matters is you and yours and your money, your this, your safety, your whatever. And they got us believing that stuff. And mama, like you, you didn't get here by yourself and you couldn't have just become a great Air Force person on, I think you're spectacular. I think lots of us are spectacular, but if we don't look at what people did to pave the way for us to get here, to now have us say, oh yeah, none of that matters because I'm just so good and I'm going to come up here and run stuff. Like, I, I think that this, the like most insidious thing that has happened is the rugged individualism that we have 
accepted and taken that if you do the American dream right, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then you can have all of the things. And that's not true. Like it's not a meritocracy. And Miles, you're absolutely right. Like the the older you get, the wealthier you get, the more conservative you get. And so, yes, like I find myself having some conservative <laughs> thoughts that I'm like, Henderson, oh, right? But like when I think about my retirement or when I think about like what I've done and I have to consciously work every day to remind myself that everybody until we all free yeah. none of us are free that's right it is really interesting um i did not know much about her until you brought her to us uh dr but you know she it, the political reported that she was sexually assaulted in the uh, air force and people were trying to reconcile her views on a woman's women's rights, given that she herself and, you know, her response had been that was confidential. Mm. And you're like, wow. Right. So when you read about all of the issues that she had in the military, even though she has said that racism isn't a thing, you're like, well, sexism is a thing. She like won't engage. And it's just like, well, that was a confidential matter. You're just like, what does it even mean? Like the, the amount of self-hate or internalized, you know, patriarchy and it's just, and uh, anti-blackness is just so troubling, especially because this isn't even like a Republican party where you're like, oh, do they like me or not? It's like, these people don't like you upfront, impersonal, very clearly. It's, this isn't Herschel Walker who like, is clearly not, you know, some screws a little loose. This is really a choice. And I will say the, the thing about her that reminds me so much of Candace Owens is like, if you want to be famous, being a sane black conservative, especially as a woman, is the way to go. Because not just famous, you... rich. Mm-hmm. Yes, famous and rich. Yes, good call. Okay. I hate that the the narrative for a lot of conservative folks or just in a lot of these conversations is, oh, how could this thing X be inherently uh oppressive if I made it in it and if I and if I succeeded in it and I'm and I'm like let's just like think big let's just think big here if a black woman whose four ancestors were enslaved and brutalized by a system then generations later feels it's okay to then give up her body and her and in her and her life and her mind to then help that same system that had brutalized her that is you don't have to die in order to be used for white supremacy. Like that is, that is, that is a white supremacist dream that somebody whose history is enslavement and brutalization now finds it okay to find their wealth and find their freedom in the same system that once upon a time would have them dead. That's, you don't have to die or be uh, blocked out in order for white supremacy to be uh, used. I just wanted to say that. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals 
and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. My news this week is about a case that is up in front of the Supreme Court, and it is about um, Native American kids who are placed in state foster care. Um, basically the issue is that, um, as a result of a 1978 law called the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, any child who is eligible for tribal membership, if they end up in state foster care, the child should, whenever possible, be adopted by a tribal family. Why? Um, basically because the tribes have a special immigration status with the or a special relationship with the US government and has for 250 years that regulate everything from tribal health and education benefits to criminal jurisdictionality, hunting, fishing, oil, mineral, gaming rights, all of these things. Tribes are treated incredibly differently than other Americans and 
What the tribes have done through this child well, Indian Child Welfare Act is seek to protect the forthcoming rights of Indian children by making sure that if they're placed in foster care, they're always placed with a tribal family, um, that that continues not just their family traditions and culture, but it actually extends the rights that they have as tribe members. Um, And it's not a perfect law or a perfect system. A lot of times when they seek to find tribal families to adopt these kids, they aren't available. And so they have to default to non-tribal families. But this case is particularly interesting because a white family in Texas is trying to adopt a four-year-old little girl who is protected by this law. And they adopted her older brother after efforts were exhausted to try to put him with a a tribal family and they couldn't find them. And so the tribes agreed and said, you know what? We'd rather he have a stable home so he can go live with nice white people. Um, And then the mother who is meth addicted um, had this little girl and they were like, boom, we just, we, we know like that she's going to be placed in foster care. We'd like to bring her into our family as well and provide her with a stable home. And the, the issues in this are really jarring because, of course, people want whatever is best for the kid. The question is, what's best for the kid has individual implications, family implications, tribal implications. And ultimately, whatever the court decides, um, it has implications for the relationship of the Native American peoples with the federal government along a bunch of different lines. If this law is overturned, it opens up the renegotiation of all kinds of tribal treaties and agreements and arrangements, because basically it would say that tribes are not sovereign nations, which is how we currently recognize them, say that tribes are races and you don't have treaties with races. And so it would basically open up for question and under this kind of a court really um, endanger many of the wins that Native Americans have secured for themselves and their people um, in this country. And um, there's a second argument to this, which is that if Uh, there's a sort of states' rights argument hiding in this as well, which is that states should get to decide how this stuff, that that states are protected from federal overreach. But all of our dealings with these sovereign tribes have federal implications. And so if states are now saying federal overreach means we don't have to do this, then it means that every state gets to reopen its conversations, negotiations, treaties, policies, et cetera, with what heretofore have been recognized as sovereign nations. And now Native Americans would be treated like a race um, and not political entities. So um, the there's two things happening at the same time. The courts are moving to decide, but the Supreme Court has to decide on the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. 
Um, and so it'll just be interesting to watch. I mean, when you think about our history of removing Native American children and placing them in white families to basically erase their culture and to teach them to, you know, whatever, educate the savage out of them. And I use air quotes for that. Um, this stuff is steeped in history and this thing is happening. And until I found it, like I haven't heard talk about it. I haven't heard anything about it. And so I'm just bringing it to the podcast because a lot of the things that have played out historically that we think are gone because there aren't Indian schools anymore and whatever are still happening to folks today. I'll just say, I didn't know anything about this until you brought it, Kaya. Um, and I'm happy that you ended where you did, because that's where I'm going to start with the history of assimilation. I had no clue that the government was forcibly taking Native American kids and putting them in boarding schools, but stopped doing that because they realized that the, the boarding schools were not effective at, quote, civilizing them and teaching them English and Christianity. Uh, but And those boarding tr- schools, they treated the children with tremendous atrocities and not just here, here, Canada, Australia, all kinds of places. Sorry. And uh, there's a scholar in Time Magazine who says that more than 75% of Indian children in school at the turn of the 20th century were brought up in the boarding schools. That is unreal. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that federal policy changed in the 1930s because the boarding schools were too expensive and weren't doing assimilation the way that the government wanted to, but they needed to find a way to still get the kids and the welfare system became the way. So they started a federal program called the Indian Adoption Project, which resulted in white families taking Indian kids that were being forcibly removed from their parents. And that lasted for 20 years. And then the Indian Child Welfare Act comes into play as a way to finally push back on the assimilation policies of this government. And that's not some... Stuff we don't say on the podcast, I don't know what is. I think what this also brings up for me, Kaya, is is how much foster care just as a system is just not a part of like our national consciousness. And so, you know, that's where it kind of sent me. Evidently, there are over 400,000 kids in foster care in the United States. And I couldn't tell you, and just as, I mean, and Dre and Kai, just as folks have been in education and me being in government for so many years, I don't know how that system works. I don't know, you know, what's the in-between for kids that, before we place them in foster homes, I know we don't have traditional orphanage, orphanages in the United States anymore, but I know that they're, they're group homes. And at what point, I also just wonder, like the the if there's a very very thin line between, you know, kind of just like not not incarceration necessarily, but just like these kids aren't they're held somewhere and not free to come and go. So I just wonder, like, how much of our carceral system is impacting the way foster care in that system um, operates. So I don't know. That's where this is kind of sending me. And and we know that the kids that are in foster care are predominantly kids of color, kids from low economic background. Um, and, and it's not to say that foster care is bad. It's just 
I couldn't tell you just as an informed American what that system is or how it's impacting kids or how it's impacting, you know, me or taxpayers or the community. So I think that that's just an interesting, um, yeah, it's just, that's, that's sending me. Well, you know, everybody had really great intelligent news to bring to the table, you know, and weekly I do not. (laughs) It's not what I'm here for. Um, So this week, so I want to preface this by saying it's uh, it's an ongoing news article or 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 news piece. So next week, because of how the internet is, it it this could totally be a different. Um, by the time you're hearing this, rather this it could totally have evolved or devolved into something totally different. So I'm just telling you um, because I find it interesting. But Rihanna has gotten some backlash because she invited Johnny Depp to perform at her Savage Fenty fashion show. Johnny Depp, I'm going to, if anybody wants to correct me, because I'm kind of I'm kind of loose on the on, on white mess. I'm really good at black mess, white mess. I'm kind of I'm not a scholar in. But Johnny Depp did something <laughs> abusive domestically to one white woman, Amber Heard, and it was a big deal. And they OJ trialed it and showed everybody. And now most people who have television who are not me <laughs> know exactly the details of what happened. And it was toxic. And, you know, yes. So because uh, Johnny Depp won in a patriarchal white supremacist uh, judicial system that is leaning towards white men, one in air quotes, the case, now his project is to rehabilitate himself. And in my opinion, I think, wait, if I got off scotch-free, I would just go hide somewhere. He said, no, I want to wear silk panties and walk with Rihanna. And that's what he's doing. And Rihanna's fans, to his credit, are Rihanna's fans are upset. Like, you see these really earnest tweets saying, oh my god Rihanna this is not you and there's no there's no delusion around it they're like no this is bad we don't want to see this there's a few outlier fans who are just you know putting blinders on but most people are like no this is bad and of course because of Rihanna's um, background, one of the ways that, of course, she has great music and great fashion, but what, but we really cling on to people because of private, intimate stories. And that story with her being abused by Chris Brown is one of the ways that we intimately connected with her. And I think that a lot of people feel um, betrayed the fact that she would platform somebody like Johnny Depp, given what she has went through. And there's so many different ways. I, I don't want to come to a hard conclusion about how I feel about this. The first conclusion, like it, it could totally just be there are producers who are good with his publicists who finagled him in and Rihanna was just like, signing checks and birthing babies and putting skincare on and it just and it just went past her. You know, that's the one I'm hoping for. But then there's also this idea that she might have really reviewed and thought about this and said, hey, I'm going to use my platform to rehabilitate this person because she hasn't, I, I yeah, she could just have said that I'm going to use my platform to rehabilitate this person and could also be so severely disconnected that uh, she thought this was the right thing. And I think no matter what, no matter how you feel about billionaires ethically and famous people and celebrity culture and, and capitalism, it's, 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 it's not a smart move 
You know, it's not a, it's not a smart move. Multiple companies, multiple people have been able to do heinous things and pretty much know that what they do publicly should align this way because it's how people see them and they do it in the dark. This this doesn't feel smart for Rihanna and her brand. And I'm just curious as to is this just a hoax and TMZ is just messing with us is, you know, people have gotten um early early tapes of it um or, uh, early releases of it and have confirmed that Johnny Depp is there I don't know if it's just again if she's just was just on an island somewhere bursting the baby and she was like I missed that whole thing which like I could see that happening um but yeah I, I I wanted to bring this to the pod because I feel like I could could not not bring this to the pod because it's just such a big story um but yeah what's out what's your opinion on it First of all, I just have to say I am here for the Miles and Johnson recaps because the, the for me the best was instead of him going home and being quiet, he decided he wanted to wear silk panties with Rihanna. Yes, yes. If if all of my news that I consume came through that lens, I'd be a mentally happier person. Thank you for the recap, Miles. I mean, one one twist that I heard on this is that in in the trial that you were not paying attention to, Miles, um, Amber Heard accused Johnny Depp of all kinds of domestic violence and abuse. He also counter accused her and countersued her, in fact, and says that he is a victim of domestic abuse. And so um, I saw in the article that one um, one fan tweeted that this is a survivor supporting another survivor. And so if you believed that, um, if you believe that um, Johnny Depp was actually a victim, um, which is not the prevalent piece, although the judge actually, I think said, there's a little bit of both going around here. Um, Then on the one hand, she could be viewed as standing up for somebody who wouldn't usually have a voice in the domestic violence thing. It's just so counter to what we think of when we think about And what we think violence. about Rihanna, right? Because I think that no matter how you cut it, I don't think of, and again, I might just be a Black person who remembers Rihanna being number seven on one of the park, trying to replay. And I followed her up until this point. So I see Rihanna from a very Black famous way where I'm like, Rihanna, you do not have to do nothing with Johnny Depp. <laughs> You, this, this is this, you know, these, these things Mm -hmm. do not overlap. There's always, but right before these Savage by Fenty shows, there's always some big controversy, right? The last time it was Islamophobia or using some holy, um, music in the thing that was sacrilegious or whatever the case may be. So there's also, and she ain't said a word, honey, not a word. She didn't say anything. And so I think now all of us who weren't even paying attention to Savage release are going to go watch this thing. And maybe that's the genius of it all. Do something provocative, right? That's what the people think. And I just feel like this, I really wasn't so surprised by this because Rihanna is a billionaire and her friends, I'm sure, are other billionaires. So I think, you know, our perspectives and 
you know, how we see the world are probably at this point, even with her being in a Black woman's body, are so far, so far from us, right? So, like, I can totally see her having been friends with Johnny Depp for a very long time and just being like, I'm going to have my boy in my show. And I can do it because I'm Rihanna. And no comment. Maybe, sure. I just think that, and I definitely agree with like the separation between like intellectual, like the discourse that are happening and certain classes of people times certain social realities, you know, because well, I, I did talk about Jay-Z and I was like, how did you, how, you, you, you said the Black Panther line, but then you said capitalist was a word that just got made up and how did both of these things happen at one time? So I definitely understand that there are conversations have being had in the billionaire, the Black billionaire class or not being had rather. But to me, it just felt like such a, um, I think she's been super smart and it felt like such a, um, a vanity flaw. Like, I don't know Beyonce's, opinions on everything i'm sure i wouldn't like them but she seems to have a pretty intelligent uh view on what she shouldn't share <laughs> because so so when she comes so for instance when she comes out with break my soul she said i just quit my job today oh they work me so damn hard what what are you talking about beyonce <laughs> you know that's not your reality but she's smart enough to know that that is the reality nope. of people consuming her and this is the reality that is going to that of the of the fantasy of beyonce that she has to feed in order to get us engaged and i kind of it just seems weird that rihanna would do this so it doesn't seem weird that she might have people who who we might not morally agree with who are she's friends with but it does seem like a misstep that she doesn't know her audience but just think her audience is the world mm-hmm. right so I also think that we have a very specific perspective in the US but Rihanna is just as famous in Asia in Europe and all these places and I bet you that there was probably two news articles you know, if you- that you might across other countries. That, and you know that's what, I'm what saying? I was saying. Maybe I'm so shaded by me meeting Rihanna on one of Sin Park and Ponder Replay and me seeing her and being engaged with her. And I have a very black American view of this superstar. And maybe this is not a black mm-hmm. American decision. This is a global capitalist decision that uh, my, my 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 little world is too is too meek to understand. Okay, so mine is about uh, retirement planning for Black women. And this was a, uh, you know, it. there's a new analysis that just came out, but it repeats a lot of things that we knew in the beginning, right? That Black women are underpaid. Black women earn 63 cents for every dollar that non-Hispanic white men earn. So we know that that results in a monthly loss of about $2,000, an annual loss of about $24,000 and a lifetime loss of almost a million dollars. So those things we knew. We also knew that um, that women are more likely than men to be caregivers, which means that uh, there are a lot of career interruptions that happen because women have to take care of the families. Uh, but what was new about this is it, it, sh- it talks about Black women have the highest levels of what public health researchers call allostatic load, the cumulative burden of bodily wear and tear from chronic stress and adverse life events compared with other groups in the workplace. And allostatic load is linked to cognitive and physical decline, breast cancer in Black women, heart disease, diabetes, and even death. Now, that too, we sort of already knew. But the super new thing um, is that one in five 
adults age 50 to 64 kept a job considered considered delaying retirement or delayed retirement to maintain their health insurance. So the the burden on black women that is just greater than it is on anybody else means that they work longer, not because they're in love with their jobs, because they need the health insurance uh, because of what this world has done to them. And I'm like, it all makes sense. But just seeing it was like, wow. Zora Neale Hurston said black women are the mules of the world. And this is the scientific backup for it. This resonated with me particularly because I'm an auntie, honey, and retirement is heavy on my mind. And the amount of conversations that I have with friends who literally cannot retire, right? The goal of retirement is to take your accumulated savings when you don't have to work anymore and enjoy some of this life is what it seems. And there are people who don't have retirement options for so many reasons. But one of the biggest at this point is because of the way our healthcare system is set up, unless you have covered healthcare, you can't, I mean, Whatever. There's all of this research out there that shows you that most Americans are $400 away from a catastrophic event that puts them into poverty. And, you know, if you have an accident at work or anything, um, that can literally change your trajectory. And as you watch women who have worked, you know, multiple jobs, worked jobs, gone to school, take care of their families, battle their own health care issues and whatnot. And it's finally time for them to get a little bit of relief to know that the system has worked once again to provide them with yet another burden, which is the accumulated health buildup BS that now you can't you can't even retire comfortably because you got to keep working because you need health care. It is. I mean, you're like what am I doing? Right. Like you are out here. Okay. Anyway, you hear in the, the, I want to retire auntie (laughs) rant, (laughs) but it's not just me. It's a whole lot of us out here. And to see the data that backs up what we all are living, which is we can't retire when we want to retire because we have to keep working for health benefits is infuriating. Announcement, black women listeners. If you don't have one, get yourself a financial advisor. I don't care if you're 23 or 63. Go find one. Black women, stop loaning money to your family members. Well, given because you know they don't pay you back. So know that that is never going to stop. So start creating boundaries around your family now. Because listen, you giving a little bit of money over time to everybody will re- will result in you not being able to retire on top of all these other things you're dealing with. So I think, you know, we, we also just have to work on our financial health and start to get an understanding as early as Yeah, we can. and I think, you know, and I think that's just, when you talk to successful Black people in any capacity, you know, there's going to be some, there's going to be some, uh, you know, professionally successful Black people. There's going to be um, some class privilege that shows up, but I'm just concerned about the people who, you know, that's just not even the realm of uh, financial advisors, not even the realm of possibility. The um uh the be, being the sole breadwinner is 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 such a um is such a 
weight on a lot of black women but then but all, but also i think about mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. yes it can look like oh i'm making this much money a year and i'm successful but and i'm helping my other people but then also it looks like i'm you know making thirty thousand dollars or less a year and i am still the person who has a managed to get the apartment or have the house or whatever it's just so, so much of these these struggles are um it, it, it just won't be solved with like some type of class individualism, meaning like, okay, well, you, I have to worry by myself or you, or, you know, I, I need to focus more on me to make sure I can retire. So much of this stuff is kind of baked into um, life as a black, as a black person, specifically as a black woman. And I think that mm-hmm. the, 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 the answer to it just has to be systemic. I don't know how many more, news articles that we can get that kind of talk about it or research it or data or analyze it there just has to be some solution to resolve to it because yeah the systems in america are killing people and killing the most vulnerable people people are usually black women what's what what where do we go from here you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think miles i completely agree but i do feel like and this is something i just have had had have had to work on over my 40 years is that, you know, it is so in black women's DNA to put everybody first. And so I think partly it's just like, and I think we are, you know, we're alien superstars. So we're able to, we are able to do those things at the same time. Like we're able to put ourselves first and, and, and try to prioritize what our needs are while still, being very much a part of the collective and understanding that, you know, what's the thing when the boat and the tide rises, we all rise together, you know. Mm -hmm. That was the most auntie way of (laughs) it. What's the thing when the boat rises? It's like, okay, PR. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. 
This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. This week, we welcome criminal defense lawyer and writer Dr. Rebecca Kavanaugh to talk about her recent op-ed in Teen Vogue titled, The D.A.R.E. Program is Back in Some School Districts. Here's what to know. Dr. Kavanaugh's op-ed takes a critical look at the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program, and we talk about the war on drugs and why the D.A.R.E. Program was developed, why it failed, and what does it mean that it's back? So many gems in this interview. Join me in welcoming Dr. Rebecca Kavanaugh. Hey, DeRay. Thank you so much for having me, and please call me Rebecca. Rebecca, so tell us, let, before we start to talk about uh, this latest essay that you wrote in Team Vogue, let's start with how did you get to working on issues of criminal justice, mass incarceration, and policing? What was your, was this always something you cared about? Did you study it in college? Did you come to it because of the protests? Like, what was your journey to this topic? Sure. Um, well, I'm from Australia, which is probably self-evident from my accent, which I'm told I still have, although I have lived here now for um, some 20 years, uh, it's always something that I have cared about um, from back when I lived in Australia. Um, I grew up in a very uh, multicultural, multiracial part of Sydney. And um, Australia is, uh, I hate to say, a very um a very racist uh country so it's always been something that in that context um from the time that i was in uh school in high school what i think you would call middle school here that i've been aware of um obviously i don't have my own personal experiences as a white person um i don't have that lived experience but i think i i would say i've always been acutely aware of, of racial justice issues. And so um, from, from that age, really, I've been um, involved in, in, I guess, what I would call uh, uh, the racial justice movement within uh, Sydney and Australia um, through my university days uh, there. And then, um, yes, I've, I've also studied it, um, you know, in Australia. I studied American history and then with a focus on actually African-American history. Uh, and then I came to the U.S. Uh, specifically to work with Derek Bell, who um, everyone I'm sure listening knows, um, or if they don't, is is one of the founders of, of critical race theory. So I came here to uh, work with him, and um, that was just, uh, you know, really a dream that uh, – you know, a dream of mine, but worked with him and uh, then became a public defender, which for me uh, was, you know, racial justice has always been, a, I see it as a human rights issue. And so that is, uh, I guess, the trajectory of my, uh, of, of how I came to, well, as I say, it's always something that I've been be, feel like I've been a part of, but where I can, I guess if you, the trajectory of my uh, educational and professional careers, one of a better um, term. Boom. 
Now let's talk about um, something that you wrote. You wrote in Team Vogue about the resurgence of D.A.R.E. Yes. And a lot of us who were kids in the 80s and 90s remember D.A.R.E. Because yes. it was such a big thing. Just Say No, for those of you listening, Just Say No was probably the most famous part of the D.A.R.E program and then a lot of us really dare just like sort of disappeared like people were just like okay there was no dare i also remember um this is your brain this is your brain on drugs um, right. do you remember that from that moment too so um i didn't grow up here um so you know i moved here as as a young adult but um i i know the commercial the the fried egg right the the that this is yes. your brain on drugs so you know because australia it's actually very culturally similar to the U.S. So just say no, Nancy Reagan, all of that did translate somewhat to the, to the um, Australian context. Although we had, we didn't have anything equivalent to Dare. But um, so I'm, I was familiar with Dare. I'm certainly familiar with that philosophy. But but right, so Dare um, was something that launched in 1983 with. Uh, uh, being the brainchild actually of Daryl Gates, um, who was the Los Angeles Police Department head. And, you know, Daryl Gates is, is rather notorious. He didn't just found D.A.R.E. He also was the person who came up with uh, SWAT teams, which, you know, he is therefore the, the father of um, SWAT policing and, uh, you know, so, to some extent, the, the militarization of the police, uh, which, which is, you know, an interesting legacy of one of a better word. But so, um, uh, yes, yeah, so D.A.R.E. Um, is a collaboration between the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles um, United School, Unified School District and stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. As you said, it is very much based on Nancy Reagan's "just say no" philosophy. Uh, so really, it <laughs> it doesn't have a lot of basis in any sort of sound uh, drug education uh, philosophy. And Daryl Gates um, himself, uh, you know, he's just a problematic. Period. Um, you know, I think uh, at one point when he testified before the Senate Judiciary Commission. Committee on um, on on drug use. He said, uh, "Drug users, casual drug users, should be taken out and shot because we're in a we're in a war, and even casual drug use is is treason." And and that's also just the key thing I think about Dare is it's part of the drug war, right? It, it's it's just um, really very much part of the war on drugs, and I don't think you can see it. As separate from that. Now, can you talk though about, can you explain how dare is not a great thing? I think about, and I say this because as, as a kid growing up, um, we saw it so much and it was like, it definitely became a joke. But my father, if I called my father today, he'd be like, of course, just say no. Like he wouldn't think of dare as like a, he definitely wouldn't think about it as a bad thing. He might think about it as like a neutral thing, but can you help us understand like, what about D.A.R.E. was actually not great? And, and now that it's coming back, what are we worried about? Sure. So it, just 
taking out for a moment the the fact that it's taught taught by police officers, right, which is the thing that I think is most problematic. But if you just look at it from a public health perspective, it's just completely ineffective. It's not an effective tool for teaching children about drugs. Um, You know, to start off, you know, I'm someone who believes that drugs should be legalized. I don't think that per se, drugs are a bad thing. Um, I'm not sure if you've read uh, Dr. Carl Hart's book um, on uh, drug legal dr- drug legalization, um, uh, drug use for grown-ups, uh, which I think is just an exceptionally brilliant book, uh, but makes up, you know, very good arguments as to why drugs should be legal. So I don't think it's a very helpful approach to teach children that drugs are a scary thing. Um, but even if you think that, um, if you don't subscribe to that view, um, they, they started to do studies on DARE um, after it became this, you know, amazingly widespread uh, program that, you know, eventually became um, something that was taught in like 75% of schools that found that it didn't stop children from using drugs. Um, if anything, if anything, it may have led to an increase in children using drugs because, you know, as a, as a child or as a teenager, if, something, if someone tells you not to do something, it's really quite likely to lead you to um, want to try it, right? So, so if you are of the view that you want to, and, and I, I'm not suggesting that children should use drugs, right? So even if I believe that drugs should be legalized, I'm not advocating for children to use them. But I don't think it's helpful to teach that drugs are this scary thing and that um, that, that that's the approach we should take. We should, you know, uh, teach children what drugs are and we should, um, you know, we, we should teach children that uh, they should make informed choices about things and et cetera, et cetera. But um, so it's just not effective. So you're spending all of this money. At one point it has um, a budget of $750 million and it's not, it's not working. So it just, um, it's not working is the, is the, uh, is the short or the long answer rather to that question. Now, have there been any studies? I'm assuming that because it was around for so long that there must have been studies about dare. Did the studies tell us anything? Well, that that was um, that was uh, the result of uh, these numerous studies. One of these studies actually was done in 1994 by uh, an institute called the Triangle Institute. And that was funded in part by the Department of Justice, which at that time was uh, funding uh, DARE, not completely, because DARE, the interesting thing about DARE, it was getting so much funding from various sources and it's somewhat hard to work out exactly where it was getting funding from, but, but it was getting a significant amount of funding from the federal government. So this Triangle Institute uh, uh, study finds that it, it has, you know, absolutely no effect on reducing drug use and the Department of Justice is really incensed by this study and it decides that they're not, it's not going to publish the report, which is interesting because I think that demonstrates that the Department of Justice has a real interest in continuing to fund DARE because DARE is a very useful program for the Department of Justice 
for law enforcement generally because DARE essentially uh, functions as a tool for law enforcement in the war on drugs. It might not be effective as a means of reducing uh, teenage or child drug use, but it certainly is effective in other ways. It's so wild that one of the studies said that it wasn't effective and and they knew about it and just brushed it aside because they were using it for something else. I also read that uh, D.A.R.E. encouraged children to become informants. Is that true? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true and, and it's substantiated. Um, and that's interesting that it, it, it even was able to be substantiated because clearly, uh, you know, if police are so secretive, it's so hard to get um, any sort of information about these things, right? But um, there were actually there are actually a couple of cases where people were able to sue, um, or their parents sued, or you know, once they became adults, they you know, some people talked about it. But uh, this is why I think that the Department of Justice was upset about these results, and and I think it's why it's coming back. And I don't think I'm alone in in reaching that conclusion. I think that that's certainly. Um, what, uh, you know, it, it's kind of obvious for people who who know uh, a little bit about the way police operate that this is this is what is behind DARE. The, um, so there, there are these cases. There was an 11-year-old girl. Her name was uh, Crystal. Now, in, in Maine, uh, she had confided to one of the DARE officers that her parents uh, occasionally smoked weed. So this leads to officers, uh, a SWAT team, coming and raiding her house and uh, they arrest her parents. She's removed from her house, removed from her parents' custody. And, you know, this is this horrific experience for this uh, young girl who thinks she's confiding in these officers um, who have presented themselves as, you know, officer friendly, right? Um, and it actually leads to her being uh, taken away from her family. Um, and she's not alone. This happens in numerous instances. And part of that is because the, the deaf philosophy, and this is actually in deaf pamphlets, this is not a secret, the deaf philosophy is recognize, resist, and report. So they teach children to recognize drugs, right? And then there's the whole idea that they should resist. But the third part, report, is the key. So children are taught that if they come across drugs, they should report that to the police. And so they report their parents' drug use to the police. This is just part of what they're taught. But they don't realize in doing that that what that leads to is, of course, their parents then being arrested and uh, prosecuted in many cases. And in a shockingly high number of cases, they are then removed from their uh, parents' custody. Because that's what happens. I mean, that's a consequence, uh, you know, even today. I don't know what I'm saying, even today. But when parents get arrested, or uh, for drug use, uh, even marijuana use, although maybe, you know, that's changing now as people uh, are being arrested 
less and less for, for marijuana use in certain jurisdictions, uh, you know, an ACS investigation will be opened and children do get removed from the home. Now, how did you know, like what, what put you on to the fact that Dare's coming back? And do we know who is, who's behind it? Like who's pushing for this to, to come back into cities? Is it ARPA money? Is it, you know, a foundation? Is it a think tank? Like who's behind the resurgence? Right. So, um, you know, so I, I'm very passionate about um, drugs, drug legalization, I should say. This is just within my, uh, you know, my, my broader interest in racial justice and uh, criminalization as a, um, uh, as an issue, I think, as a human rights issue. I think that uh, the criminalization of drugs and the ways in which uh, police operate, uh, I, I just think that this is something that is, is key. And so I'm, you know, uh, Dr. Carl Hart is someone who is obviously very on top of these issues. I'm not sure if you know Tamika Franklin, who also works on these issues, but so they're people that I talk about with this. And Tamika was, um, you know, it was in a conversation with her that I learned about um, the resurgence of death. It never went away. Let me be clear. It never stopped, right? It just became very, very much less common. You know, its budget, you know, which was at one point 750 million became something like 3 million. So in the last few years, I think, um, you know, we've seen this resurgence of community policing and DARE is the perfect example of community policing, which I, you know, I'm using quotation marks there because what we see with community policing is an attempt by police departments to integrate themselves into communities, not to protect or help people, but to integrate themselves into communities to uh, extract information and to um, collect information on the on the people that they are policing. So DARE allows them to do that with the most vulnerable members of the communities that they're policing, children. And so I think it's part of that. And so it's, you know, it, it's Chicago and it's Baltimore. It's major police departments now who are doing this. Yeah. How did you come to know that this was even happening? Did you see it in a study? Did you read an article about it? Like, how'd you know this was coming back? Yes. So um, specifically, uh, Tamika Franklin, who is a close friend of mine, who also works with Dr. Carl Hart, uh, she uh, specifically told me um, or mentioned it um, in passing in a conversation. And uh, so then it, it, uh, it, gave me the idea that um, it would be something that would be very interesting to write about because I just don't think that it is on people's radar. It hasn't been uh, reported nationally and it's so important, right? Like 6,000 of the 18,000 police departments across the country now have their offices. And it's not, you know, in every uh you know, school district in the nation. But if you think about Chicago, Baltimore, 
And I don't think it's coincidental that these police departments have the reputations that they do, right? I mean, to me, that speaks very much to the fact that this is not a, um, it's not really a program that is designed to be, um, you know, warm and fuzzy. It's a program that is designed to use children as, um, as soldiers, uh, I'll use that word, soldiers in the war on drugs. And uh, I mentioned this in my article because I really do think it's the perfect uh, term to describe it. Um, Dorothy Roberts, who, you know, is just an amazing scholar who talks about the child welfare system in general, but it's a form of benevolent terror. It's a form of using police and, you know, under the guise of uh, doing something to help people or help here children and families to really terrorize them because it, it, it's ineffective, it's still ineffective, but children are being removed from their families. And you can't point to any any other studies, certainly there haven't, you know, there haven't been any studies about what's happening now because it's largely just gone under the radar. Um, But I I feel confident that if there were studies that it wouldn't show that it's any more effective because nothing has changed, at least as far as I can see from what's been reported, except that there's more of a focus now on opioids as opposed to marijuana. So, but the methods, you know, drugs are scary, Um, just say no, seems very much to be still the methodology that they're employing. Boom. Now, what can people do about it? So people will hear this, they'll be like, whew, didn't know D.A.R.E. was not what I thought it was. What should people do? Right. So I I do think, you know, uh, obviously this is the first step, but there has to be more than awareness, right? It, it has to go further. So it is something that is happening um, at the school district level. So to the extent that people are involved um, in their local school boards, which, you know, as, we, as we've seen lately is just the key to, to so much, um, if they can uh, get involved and protest uh, the implementation of the program at that level, I think that will be the most effective thing that they can do. The problem is, as we see that people have, you know, tend to be quite supportive even of the idea of, you know, school safety officers in schools. And, and I think this is seen as something that is um, benevolent, right? Although people... I was surprised when I uh, when I wrote the article that so many people did just have, you know, even if they weren't, uh, even if they weren't angered by the the reemergence of Dare, I think they just felt that it was such a useless program, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone would look at it now and say, "Oh, well, it, it must have changed. It, it, it must be." It, it must be so much better now. I, I guess I would just be concerned that there has been such a moral panic surrounding, or, you know, this is obviously generated by the media, surrounding things like fentanyl that I do think 
that that would be something that police and school officials would be able to play on to get support for this sort of thing. But it's just so inappropriate and so, as I say again, ineffective to to even have police officers in this role when you, you know, even putting aside the, the extreme danger that it presents. So there, there's a question that we ask everybody in the pod, and mm-hmm. it is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Best advice that I could give anyone is to never talk to the cops, never talk to the police. Boom. Well, we are honored to have you here, and we consider you a friend of the pod, and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much, Jure, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have been to have been here. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Charlotte Lambs. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 